Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Rob, it's going well. How are you? It's going very well. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm excited, actually. I'm excited. You know, it's always, it's always really cool when we get to see one of our projects. You know, you work on something for a while, and you know you're you're wondering how it's going to go, and you see it get released into the world. You see the hugely overwhelming positive response. I mean, and and we do a lot of this kind of work, and there's nothing more gratifying than that. And it's we're kind of having one of those moments right now. I feel good about what we've been working on the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm ready to go. Ready to get working on some more stuff. A really exciting time. Yeah, I think I, if I had to quantify how much time we spent writing, directing, producing, and editing the Blackstone Christmas music video, I'd probably say it was three months. Yeah. That, it was a lot of time. A lot of revisions. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Working on the hooks for that. It's like, you know, you mm -hmm. want to, you, you start developing, you know, decent pop hooks for uh, a music video for a private equity giant like Blackstone. And you want to make sure that it's perfect, right? So it went through a lot of revisions. Uh, we had the, the, from the demo version to the final release, you know, just really just trying to just jam pack that with as much a uh, fist pumping hooks and drum sounds and and synths in there as you can possibly fit in and you know i think we pulled it off you listen to the i listen to the demo often as i'm walking around and listen to the final version today it was like wow this really evolved over the last couple of months so couldn't couldn't be more proud of the the track the the pop track that we produced for uh again private equity firm blackstone very cool one of the moments that I will think about on my deathbed was the night we were in the studio with Will I Am. Yeah. And we were writing the lyrics. He beamed in in hologram form to to hang out and with us, which just, is really he has a lot going on. So that was cool that he took the time to do just, that. Yeah. Just that he made him it was like him, like Dre, yeah. uh Rick Rubin, and we were all just like <laughs> in that studio, just like yanking our hair out, thinking yeah. about lyrics, like how do we rhyme you know, some of these words, like oh, we're in our alternatives era. Like uh, I think that team that came together to produce this, I think we made something special. And like I said, it's going to, it's going to be something I think about when I'm on my deathbed. It's something I'm, I'm immensely proud of the Blackstone Christmas music video. Yeah. I mean, with the, I remember when we, when we just finally nailed that hook, you know, that, that rhyme, look at our brands. You can tell, our superpower is our scale. Great returns for institutions and private wealth solutions. You know, people thought that we couldn't turn that into a catchy pop jam, and, and oh. we absolutely did. We we proved the haters wrong on that one. So that was Rick. I mean, that was Rick Rubin. <laughs> like I can't take credit for that line. I mean, you're, you're talking That's about true. one of the greatest producers to, to walk the face of the planet. That, yeah. that you could just feed, you could see his fingerprints all over that line. Yeah, it was it was all about that yoga retreat that we went on. I think when we had to clear clear our heads, you know, forget about all the other the other things going on in our lives, and really get down to basics. And like, what does this what does this mean? What are we trying to communicate here with this music video for private equity giant Blackstone? Like, that's really mm -hmm. get strip everything down here. And I think that was really the breakthrough moment. Yeah. Traveling really to India it. was, uh, you know, people said that that was a big expense to go and, and do that trip like the Beatles did, you know, back in the day. But I think 
the proof is in the pudding, as they say, and I think we really knocked it out of the park. Yeah. So we just want to thank everyone for subscribing to the podcast. Your subscription made this music video possible uh, without you. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of there's a lot of important causes to be spending money on right now. So I know this is really it's going to be meaningful to people that they contributed to something. So that's really bringing something positive at this time. This is, it's a dark time, you know. It's a dark time. And we want to contribute to something beautiful, and the listeners of this show have done that. So we thank you. How could you watch that and not get a smile on your face? We're just making people happy. Absolutely. In, in all in all seriousness in all honesty like i hadn't heard this you just sent this to me uh, i hadn't heard the the blackstone uh, christmas bop and you know you sent it to me like to, as to we could joke around about it and you know it is obviously very ridiculous but i gotta say it is a genuine jam like it's, oh, it's, it's catchy. genuinely yeah. pretty good i i hate to say it you know it's i would like to make fun of how bad it is but the content is is bad, but the actual, the way the platform, the way the content is delivered, they nailed it. Actually, I, I gotta I gotta <laughs> tip my tip my hat to them on this one. It's it's pretty fucking good. It is catchy, unfortunately. Yeah, but the the music video itself is horrendous. It's like iMovie and cheap costume level bad. Yeah, but it, the, the song itself is really catchy. Unfortunately, that, that will be stuck in my head. And it'll probably be stuck in yours once you hear it. But before we get into our conversation with Sean Morrow of More Perfect Union, which is, I thought, a really fun conversation about the NDAA, uh, military spending, uh, the Biden administration's negotiations with House House Republicans to pass a supplemental funding bill in addition to the NDAA to funnel over a hundred billion dollars to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan in exchange for Trump era immigration policies. Before we get into that conversation, I want to remind everyone that we had Steve Monticelli, investigative reporter that many of you may know already, on earlier this week to talk about Tucker Carlson's evolving media ecosystem. He launched a new media platform. He helped get Alex Jones back on Twitter. And when he launched this platform, he immediately received tens of millions of dollars in funding. And we talk about the disproportionate media landscape. And it's grim. It's grim out there if you are on the left. It's grim out there if you're independent. It's grim if you are progressive and trying to uh, produce media, any form. You don't have huge institutional or multi-billionaire backers. You rely on individual support and contributions and if you do youtube ads but it is slim pickings so we are really grateful that many of you subscribe to the show you help keep the show going you make it possible and we make the case in that show just how important it is to support uh progressive or lefty independent media because no one else is doing it and you know what it's not you're not going to hear this in any other pitch it's not just about us 
We're not just asking you to subscribe to this show. Like think about other outlets, other independent lefty or, or socialist out, out, outlets you like, and also support them because you really do need a robust media ecosystem because you see how the right operates and how they can drive narratives and the left does not have an equivalent. So if you are able to, you get access to that episode with Steve and every other premium episode we have released. You get an additional episode every week for just five bucks a month. You can head on over to insurgentspod.com. Like I said, we greatly appreciate your support. Yeah, we're going on three years of of doing the show. Am I? Is that right? I think right. I think it was February twenty. 20- Coming up on our fourth year. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we started in February wow. 2020. That is absolutely insane. But yeah, we're coming <laughs> up on, okay, four years. Uh, of, I'm old, I guess, now, and my memory is fading. So it's, it's actually amazing that I'm still able to have some of these conversations. We're going on four years of doing this show, however many episodes, 260-something episodes, I think. We've really enjoyed every moment of doing this show and having these conversations. We really could not do it. Um, without the the support of the people that that listen to this show in the community that that has been uh, that has kind of formed around the work that we do on here, we really really appreciate it a lot. And again, if you do enjoy the show, folks, uh, it's really the only way that we can continue doing it uh, is if people are able to support the work that we do. We appreciate it a lot. Uh, so if you're one of the non-subscribed listeners, we have so much really great bonus content that you get access to. If you subscribe to the Insurgents podcast, you can do so at insurgentspod.com. It really, really means a lot. Uh, everyone that is able to help support the show, keep the show going. We have some kind of pretty big things planned for the coming uh, year. We're getting into election season. We're hoping to do some some pretty cool stuff. And uh, so every every contribution really, really helps us do this show and make it as good as it can possibly be. So we thank you to everyone who's been able to support us over the years. It's so cool that people are out there doing that. Um, and uh, that's it. We thank you. Yeah. Well, let's get into our conversation with Sean. Let's do that. It was really fantastic. And I think uh, our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation with Sean Morrow of More Perfect Union. He's going to be joining the show right after this absolute jam that you're about to hear. And now we're joined by Sean Morrow, who is a writer with More Perfect Union. Sean, we here at The Insurgents love More Perfect Union and the stuff you all put out, which covers the news and economic policy and developments with a worker-centric focus. So we greatly appreciate you and the rest of the team at MPU. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, the respect's mutual. Uh, I, I'll speak for the whole staff. The whole staff of MPU loves you guys too. Oh, wonderful. Oh, thank you. 
Even Rob. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. I snuck in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what? It's been about two months. I had to put a hiatus on our opening question just because it didn't feel... It was just too grim. It was too grim. Yeah. Yeah. And not that the state of things has gotten any better. No. I think we can find time to decompress through non-war-related content and conversations. I actually think it's important. Personally, I I was just... I had reached a breaking point, just consuming only war-related news for far too long. So... Without further ado, Sean, we have to ask you the question that asterisk we ask all of our guests. <laughs> Sean, are you a gamer? Uh, I prefer a person who games uh, mm. rather than the label gamer. <laughs> but no, I, I do I do enjoy I do enjoy a video game. I I got a PS5 recently. I hate how gamery it looks. Like it's a really ugly piece of equipment that I've got sitting in my living yeah. room now. But uh, I'm enjoying it. It's the ugliest console like ever created. Oh, by it far. It has to be. I think things should be like uh, that plastic beige, like a classic, like an old uh, like an old desktop computer. Like everything should be that beige plastic. Yeah. I think I that's that. the, the best. Yeah. Or it's translucent purple shape. I would also be really into. Yeah, the shape that is would bad be sick. too. It's, the shape is yeah. so inconvenient. Yeah, it's, it's awful. And it's like, you know, like I'm a 35-year-old man. I'm not trying to make my apartment super cute or anything but it's just so ugly i i can't take it but i i'm still grateful for it i'm a 40 year old man and i've set up my apartment so it looks like i live in a little spaceship (laughs) nice yeah yeah with all the lighting and everything just if only listeners could see rob right now yeah (laughs) yeah uh why? It's, I don't know what I don't know what you're referring to. Actually, I'm just a normal. I, I just normal can't put man. my finger on it. I can't yeah, put my paw on it. Nor- normal, <laughs> normal looking guy over here. <laughs> Sean, what have you been playing lately? Uh, I've been playing through the Metal Gear Solid collection on Nintendo Switch. It's all the original Metal Gear Solid games. Um, I, I know you said you wanted to to take a step away from the war conversation, but uh, it's actually really right deep back. stuff yeah. about the military industrial complex. Um, Kojima was way ahead of his time with those games. Like the, the the themes in some of those games are like 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 an Adam Curtis documentary or something. They're really smart and really predictive of our of our modern era. But just like fun, silly stuff. I guess I was also playing Death Stranding, which is Kojima. I got to try Baldur's Gate three. I have it. I haven't started it yet. But I'm excited to try that as well. What is your <clears throat> What is your preferred Metal Gear? Uh, I I really loved sons of liberty but i think my favorite was probably snake eater i haven't played them in a long time though so it, it really would be something cool to revisit yeah the remakes are actually pretty solid uh they're they're good i have it on the switch um i like i think two is my personal favorite but i acknowledge that three is the best one two sons of liberty three is uh snake eater i understand three is the piece of art and sons of liberty is a little hokey but i i really love sons of liberty it's great and i have childhood or more childhood memories of it as well well, what's um like what specifically when you're talking about um you know the themes of of Metal Gear uh, that you're you're going through right now like what what like how do you think it uh, it relates so much with uh, with our current kind of modern reality like I have my own theories on this but I'd be interested to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just starting uh, war wise, like uh, the plot of the second one involves uh, the, the the villains kidnapping somebody who's crucially important to the to the military operation, and it's not the president or the, well, the president gets kidnapped later, but it's not the secretary of defense or anything. It's the head of a military contractor, a large military contractor, is who they kidnap for for the uh, for that influence, and the head of DARPA at the same time. 
So they had, the Kojima had that understanding of how that would be. I'm pretty sure I might be wrong on this, that at some point in the in, in Metal Gear Solid 2, they play that classic Eisenhower speech that everyone throws at the beginning of their military industrial complex documentary. It's at the beginning of JFK. It's the beginning of everything. Uh, more thematically with the internet, uh, it really, the, the, they're, they, they're, they're, well, the, the villain's evil scheme is to like manipulate information on the internet using a neural network of AI and by not actually censoring things, but like changing the context of how we understand things. And it's like, that seems pretty much like how things are, are happening now. You said you also have, have theories. Yeah. I mean, I would need to revisit the games definitely, but uh, I think you're right though, that how, how forward thinking Kojima was. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is really amazing revisiting some of these things. Uh, through the kind of modern context, definitely. I really did, uh, you know, I always really appreciated the kind of Vietnam era setting of Snake Eater and the, the big boss's defection to the Soviet Union and the kind of conflicting uh, feelings that that kind of represents, especially you as the as the player where you're going through that epic kind of final battle um, yep. with big boss and um, kind of tearing down this sort of black and white Cold War politics and understanding that there's these kinds of different shades of gray that are involved in that. I always thought that was really interesting and not really something you were you were seeing a lot in any kind of storytelling medium like at that time. Yeah, absolutely. At that time, it was yeah, it was something you were barely even seeing in like anything like big budget like a movie. And then you haven't really seen it in video games again until something like Disco Elysium or something like that that's really having smart political uh, a smart political like nuanced political conversation. You know, I I mentioned this when Hegelbon was on to talk about his book and there was a chapter on Metal Gear Solid. That is a franchise that I have never played. Mm. And I know I should and I know I would enjoy it, but I just never got around to doing it. But maybe this is the year. Maybe one of my New Year's resolutions will be to play through the Metal Gear Solid series. At least the first three that's yeah, the first three good. Are good. And you can play it like a, like a week or two to play all of them. I even okay. the first one I think is like would be is really interesting just not only on the political level but just kind of as it sort of redefined like what you could do in a game. Um and kind of these moments where there's kind of a a wink at the at the player and this kind of breaking of the fourth wall. It was so different from anything uh that was mm-hmm. that had been released at that time. I'm thinking of the the fight with uh was Mantis Psychomantis? Psychomantis. Psychomantis. Yeah. When Psychomantis is reading your memory card on the on your PlayStation yep. and referencing all different games that you played, and you yep. have to unplug the controller and plug it back in, like that. That really was such a really unique way to kind of completely kind of change this whole paradigm of what a game could be and what it could what it could feel like. Um, was just so cool. Even though that's the one that I probably haven't played in the longest time, but it's it's truly amazing how both forward thinking they, those games were both politically and in storytelling terms, but also just in terms of sort of the, yeah, this redefinition of, of what it meant to play a video game in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. Kojima is really, really ahead of his time. And he, he knows it. That's why he acts like a kooky auteur, but I saw they're yeah. just there. I saw a 24 is adapting death stranding into a film. I believe is that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was just, and he's been of, taking yeah meeting with like Timothy Chalamet and stuff like that. Who knows what yeah. he's, what he's up to. I never played that. Is that worthwhile? I just started it. It's it's plotting. It's long. It's a lot of okay. it's a lot of cutscenes. It's a lot of cutscenes. A lot of cutscenes and a lot of Holland boxes across uh, across yeah, ruined America. Yeah, and yeah, you're just Norman Reedus in full motion capture for just fifty hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I could say I've been gaming 
lately, but uh, aside from a couple Fortnite sessions over the past couple weeks, I I've just been learning guitar with all my free time. Oh, nice! Mm. I figured this was going to be a finally like I'm I'm almost forty. I'm going to just finally learn, and I've been learning all the basic like riffs, like uh, Crazy Train and yeah, Carry yeah. On Wayward Son. Um, mm. And I started looking at tabs, and I realized. Is there a more simple band that reached the level of success that ACDC did? Yeah. It's just every fucking song is like a couple power chords, <laughs> maybe a couple riffs, and a 4-4 four, four beat. It's just so fucking redundant. It's beautiful. I mean, it's just it shows, though, like how, how much variation you can have off these very, very simple ideas, you know? And yeah, it's like sure. it's, it's simple in terms of like the songwriting and the structure and all like that. But it's like, if it was that easy to write though, that many iconic memorable songs, everyone would do it, you know, but it's like, what well, you have to be, <laughs> sure. you have to approach things with a certain level of musical genius, even when you are doing something that's so incredibly simplistic um, <laughs> to be able to just churn out hit after hit after hit of these iconic riffs and songs and hooks. I mean, I think that's the beauty of, of music actually. As how simple that it sometimes can be, but how much you can, how much variation there can be with these very, very simple ideas. Yeah. Uh, another one, Smells Like Teen Spirit was another one that has a really easy riff, but that song is phenomenal. Like the, the whole album is phenomenal, but like I just found that this, this is one of the most iconic songs ever and it's incredibly easy to learn. I just, I couldn't believe it. I'm learning so much. Good. Also that my fingers aren't very flexible. Learning yeah. that a lot. That that that's all comes from like muscle memory. It's just and that's yeah, a matter yeah. of repetition. I guess this would be my advice to you as a as a veteran guitar player, um, and mm -hmm. any any listeners that might be thinking about picking up the instrument is that I think when you start to learn, you kind of hit a point where you're just like my fingers just don't work. It just doesn't. I can't bend them. I can't stretch them. That's when a lot of people give up. But really, it's just a matter of continuing to push through that and continuing to just play and practice, and eventually your hands just your muscles and your hand just change and it'd be all these things that are impossible at first eventually kind of become effortless. So you got to push through that time. That's when most people give it up. You got to keep going. Yeah. I just practiced scales for like several hours this week. And now I'm realizing like, Oh, what I thought was hard a week ago is yeah, really easy right now. It's crazy. It's crazy what your body can just learn. This sounds so silly, but like instruments were designed to be played, you know, and like people think like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do that. But it's like, no, it was made for you to for, for you to play it. The same is true of like, like very difficult video games, like a Dark Souls or something. It was designed to be beaten. But you think it's too hard for you. And uh, realizing that has helped me with a lot of stuff, like learning complicated software or figuring out how to like do a FOIA. It's like, oh, well, no, that's actually designed to be very complicated on purpose. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's things, <laughs> things, these things are designed to be done. Yeah. These things are designed to, like uh, Final Cup or uh, Adobe Premiere is designed to be used. So you shouldn't think of it as difficult. It's made for by somebody yeah. for you to use it. We're unlocking the year of learning here at The Insurgents. We expect <laughs> every listener to pick up a new, what seems to be challenging hobby going into the new year. What will yours be, Sean? I'm a, I'm all about. Uh, I just happened to see this. The oral hygiene. I just got a uh, electric <laughs> toothbrush. He's gonna master like I really toothbrushing. I'm gonna master brushing my teeth and just like you know, for your general health. I found out like how bad like uh, you know the, the plaque and stuff can be for everything. So that's my big thing. I want to learn how to take care of myself generally. I recommend a water flosser if you don't have one of those. Those are great. Yeah, I was I not. A, I was never been a big flosser, and that's that's made that whole process a lot more streamlined. 
you and you can fill it, you fill it with a little yeah it's just like a high pressure water? water thing exactly and you fill it the 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 light the hack on this is you fill it like one tenth of the way with a little mouthwash so you get a little minty freshness as well i recommend that. interesting yeah all right it's a bit like a mouth bidet That's, yeah <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. Save for I, mean, your I don't know if I would frame it like that, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, in terms of my my uh, New Year's uh, self-improvement um, measures, I I don't know because last year, I've like as you see on the bookshelf behind me, I got a whole bunch of books, many of which I have not read. And mm-hmm. I said, you know what? This year I'm going to start putting a dent into these books that I've not read. And – didn't quite get to the goal okay. that I that I laid out for myself. Um, so I don't know. I feel a little bit bad about it, actually. I guess I'm just going to renew that and try and see if I can do some more this year, try and make it through some of these things, you know, yeah. just to, to, to evolve from just having the books so it, people think that I'm smart to actually maybe becoming <clears throat> smart at one point as well. That would be kind of nice as well, you know? Not having the commuter anymore killed my book reading. Like, I'm, like I used to read like probably like a book a week back in the day. And I think all pandemic, I've read like 15 or 20 books total, which is terrible. Like it's crazy. It feels awful. Um, it's, it's hard to just like sit down in your house and sit down and choose to read a book over all the other things you could be doing. Right. Yeah. I had a job for a little bit when I was living in DC where I had about a 40 minute Metro ride and I would just get a chapter or two or done each direction and was cranking out books and had the same experience once I started working from home. But I got on Audible. And this is not an endorsement of Amazon or Audible, but that's just the platform I, I've used. Um, but just audiobooks in general. Also, Libby is great. I mean, check with your local library if you're not an audiobook person but want to be. A lot of libraries have audiobook options through this app called Libby, which is great. But now I just listen on like 1.7 speed. <clears throat> and I'm zooming through books. Ryan Grimm's new book. Have either of you checked that out yet? It's really, it's no. a really, really fun read or listen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. All the the whole uh, like his uh, take on uh, things like Apex influence beyond Israel and how like you know how much they've ruined sounds really. I've read little bits on that, so I'm really looking forward to reading the whole thing. Really great timing on that book. It's really, really important. Yeah, it shines a light on that whole DC influence operation. Which, of course, as we know, criticizing is anti-Semitic. So, <laughs> hate to see Ryan canceled, but yeah. it is what it is. It's got to be done. <laughs> well, Sean, we've got you here today because Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act. 866 billion defense policy bill. You've got a new video out at More Perfect Union explaining it talking about it but among other things talking like cutting through this oh it creates jobs language that you have seen policymakers um cabinet officials and others use to justify its annual passage could you explain how they they try to frame the ndaa as a jobs bill and what it actually is yeah absolutely so uh, the 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 argument that war makes jobs or defense spending makes jobs has existed since uh, World War II as a major argument. And it's been around before that uh, less majorly. And after World War II was true. Uh, the, the way that we invested in things did create a lot of jobs and did create a lot of economic opportunity for people. Uh, but that lesson has been pointed to after that for defense spending that is 
less of a, you know, something that most Americans would, would agree with. Uh, you see it popping up in, uh, arguments for the Cold War, uh, early, like in the, as early as like the fifties, there's, um, NSC 68, this document, uh, written by a bunch of, uh, influenced by, written by a bunch of state and department of defense guys, but influenced by the, then new defense industry. And they say like point to the jobs that came out of World War II as a reason for spending all of this money. If you look at today, uh, uh, I think it was Politico that reported uh, 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 that Biden was requesting that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle point to the jobs angle, say you this will create jobs. Uh, the, the companies themselves have done this as well. Uh, William Hartung's reporting has pointed out that that uh, that Raytheon uh, made a huge push with these like subway ads and uh, ads on different uh, and, like pu- publications the politicians read saying uh, 300 million protected X amount of jobs created or X amount of jobs employed. So this is something they've been saying all along. And Biden said here, too. Yeah. On the ads thing, that's something after having lived in D.C. for 10 years the metro ads that you would see the defense contractors place and where they place them was so interesting. Mm-hmm. And they would really only be at the Capitol Hill South, definitely the Pentagon stop, and maybe a couple others, but that was it. And they would blanket these metro stops because they yeah. figured they would have a good ROI just by covering these stations and the cars that will go in and out of those stations on those specific lines, because you can do line specific ads and they would just blanket these places because they know, Hey, we're going to get these are, you know, we're going to get eyeballs on these. And in return, we're going to get a windfall of cash through government contracts and framing it as some jobs program is so deceptive because they really just want to increase their stock price, which helps uh, enrich their shareholders the executives are going to make bank. The idea that this is sustaining the workforce nationally is just ludicrous. No, no. Work, most working class people are not going to be impacted by the military industrial complex. It's going to make a handful of people even more wealthy. And yes. that's it. And in the process, it completely sanitizes. And when, when framing a bill like this, it sanitizes the horrors of war the horrors that we are inflicting and aiding around the world and the U.S.'s role in conflicts like in Yemen or recently now in, in, in Gaza, because that's not a that's not a jobs program. This is industrial slaughter, especially in Gaza. But as we talked about extensively on the show over the years, Yemen never really got the attention it deserved, despite the U.S.'s critical role in backing the Saudis on that. If the U.S. withdrew its support for the Saudi Air Force, that war would be over immediately. And it brought people to the brink of famine. I mean, many, many people died, starved, because of the blockade that the U.S. helped the Saudis enforce. And there that, were like outbreaks uh, of, of, long, of diseases yeah. that had long ago been eradicated, like cholera affecting children in yeah. Yemen as a result of that blockade. Uh, yeah. And selling weapons to the Saudis specifically is something that has specifically mm-hmm. been used as an example of a, of a job creator. They've said that selling weapons to the Saudis will will create jobs. Um, I did not include this in our video because it's not a, a great source, but I found a old Department of Defense report on how APAC makes their arguments and how the Israel lobby makes their arguments. And in it, the guy that wrote it, who's from some military university, cites a private conversation he had. So I'm not reporting this as a real thing, 
but he says one of the only times that Israel, that the American Israel lobby ever said it was okay to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia was when they realized there would be a backlash about jobs if they killed it. And again, that's coming from a private conversation this guy claims he had. So I, uh, it's not an amazing source. I sound like Donald Trump right now. Some people are saying, but um, yeah, that's it's 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 one hundred percent a part of it. And you know, we're not the ones bringing up the jobs argument. The president's the one bringing up the jobs argument. The Mitch McConnell's the ones bringing up the jobs argument. The defense companies are bringing up the jobs argument. The jobs argument isn't the most important thing. But if they're going to be making the jobs argument, we're going to want to dispel the jobs argument. And there's always there's always conversations around anything else. And we, you know, we have this conversation. Every time the NDAA or another military spending bill or arms funding passes, there's always conversations when we talk about things that would benefit working people nationally. Oh, well, we can't afford that. But that is never, ever considered when they pass these, debate over these. Um, yeah. You know, even when the, the president releases his budget proposal, it's never considered. Now, we're, you know, we're getting close to a trillion dollar uh, annual spend uh, uh, on defense. And yep. no one, no fiscal conservative, nobody who's a budget hawk is ever going to raise the prospect of fiscal responsibility. It's only when <laughs> something could benefit working people, someone who doesn't have a, a strong lobbying arm backing them up, and a group of people who do not have billions of dollars to spread throughout party, you know, party apparatuses and and through campaigns it's just who has the money and who has the power that you get a free pass if you're raking in a trillion dollars nearly a trillion dollars every year this is also coming on the heels i should point out above the pentagon failing an audit for the sixth year in a row a story that was just released uh november 15th (laughs) like it's just insane like we've talked about some of the massive fraud that's been like the only the the small vestiges of this story have really been uncovered about the kind of fraud that's going on and the incompetence. So it really is just incredible the way that there's just this never-ending money printing machine just going directly to these defense contractors, no matter what they actually produce, no matter what the geopolitical situation is. Like we've seen the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which you would think would decrease the defense budget rather than increase it, but it seems to have had the opposite effect. Uh, it's it's truly amazing, you know, uh, how this just is just uh, when you look at United, the United States government, the way this just gets uh, whisked, whisked right through with no real debate or no real outcry. No one's on the news talking about how, what it's going to mean for inflation or talking about how it's going to get funded. It's just it's it's honestly insane the way that this is just a pretty much just a normal part of the way the United States government functions. It's just assumed that it's OK. It's assumed that. And the, yeah, the, the argument that it somehow helps the economy is is, is a huge part of it. Uh, but you know, the even if you're looking at like the rest of the S and P, it's not doesn't go up when the defense budget goes up. The profits of the defense companies go up. Those stocks go up, sure. But the rest of the S and P entirely is is not going up, and they're not creating jobs. Like after you know, I, I had to pull up this fact, but after Lockheed Martin got thirteen billion dollars more in a in a ten year period, they cut tens of thousands of jobs in that same time period. So that, that means more money and fewer jobs. It's just a complete bullshit. It's a, just complete bullshit. It's a total lie. If you look at uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, she was so proud of this new big plant that she's building. I think it's uh, uh, Raytheon and Raphael, which is an Israeli arms company, uh, tens of millions of dollars. And at the end of this press conference, she goes, it, that's just creating 30 jobs, 30. 
when I was, I was just watching that press conference, kind of like typing up something else had it in my ear. And I did a spit take, like in a cartoon when she said 30 jobs. It's, <laughs> it's insane. Well, how many are kids though? How many of those jobs <laughs> are going to be filled by children? <laughs> it's good. That's good. That's a good internship for a couple of kids down in Arkansas. Yeah. Screwing the fin on like a missile or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this I is think, connected. I believe actually, oh, sorry, go during ahead, World War II, uh, during World War II, uh, I, I'm not sure if this was defense plants or if it was his normal car plants. Henry Ford did hire little people for for jobs in these big manufacturing plants because they could do things that other people couldn't. Um, and he was considered like that was considered a good thing at the time for like giving them jobs. Willy yeah. Wonka as uh, industrialist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, he at the time also said that no one should make uh, make a profit off of off of weapons of war, and he's one of the most you know ruthless anti-Semitic racist people of all time. And yeah. even he understood that people shouldn't be making profit off of weapons. He was like, "No one should be making profit off of this stuff. We'll do it uh, at cost," uh, which was probably a lie. But Jesus yeah. Christ, <laughs> he said that in between writing love letters to uh, Hitler. Um, yeah, yeah, because he was also <laughs> selling weapons to them too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He was playing both sides. Yeah. It was just Ford v. Ford the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, this is kind of tangentially related to this, but now we see this effort uh, on the part of the Biden administration to drum up uh, more funding for the, the war in Ukraine, which it seems at this point everyone recognizes is not going to lead to the Russians being expelled and uh, from the eastern parts of Ukraine that they never, the territory they now hold. It seems like there's there's almost like an understanding or a close to being an admission of that that was never really a realistic goal that was going to happen mm. um and we can debate about you know who whether that's a, what that means or you know but that's just kind of the reality of it um but now they're trying to still uh pass a kind of last ditch uh aid package and i see that biden has now signaled that they're open to making making even more draconian uh, reactionary immigration policies to appease these uh, conservatives uh, in in the U.S. government to pass this package, um, which you know, again, we like we've talked about um, on this show a lot how Biden's immigration policies are maybe with the cruelty knob ever so slightly turned down, more or less identical to Trump's, and it's truly amazing at this time now that they're willing to go even farther on that and even to uh, allowing you know, the possibility of of instituting even more horrific immigration policies in order to pass yet another massive uh, funding bill to go to Ukraine, which they almost universally recognize isn't going to actually achieve the objectives that they always said it was going to achieve. And, you know, it's just yet another example of the ways that the Biden administration has been completely willing to jettison every single major issue that is appealing to progressives and young people especially. And, Again, they're looking around at these poll numbers that they're seeing right now and scratching their heads and wondering why that's going on. But I mean, it shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone at this point when we see these kind of priorities in action. Yeah, it's like uh, it's the genocide, Joe. You know, like that's why people why the poll numbers are going down. That's what people aren't aren't happy about. Uh, and you know, we're sending all this money to Ukraine, and even if you do think the answer to this problem is to arm arm the Ukrainians to the teeth. They're not doing that because uh, there's a New York Times report that a lot of the stuff that they're we're spending money on just isn't getting there in time, or they're sending them old, broken shit. So they're not even getting the stuff that they're paying or that we're paying for. 
Um, and like we, we bargained to be able to do that. We gave away the, the, the humanity of, of, of refugees and people trying to en enter this country for whatever reason. We gave away their humanity to give a bunch of broken weapons to the Ukrainians. It's insane. Yeah. And on Tuesday, Zelensky told senators that Ukraine is considering conscription of men over 40 to bolster frontline troops. This is according to Senator Wicker, and this was reported out by Eric Wasson of Bloomberg. But think about that. And think about that within the context of the progressives' attempt to push for diplomacy. Do you remember that letter? Just saying, hey, yes. diplomacy should also be a factor in any negotiations and any conversations we have, because prolonging this conflict only is going to lead to more Ukrainians dying. Just consider it. And they were browbeaten into submission for even suggesting that they also consider diplomacy. Nowhere in that letter did it say cut off all funding, stop supporting Ukraine entirely. It was just, hey, this should also be a piece of the pie. And that's it. And it shows just how this bloodthirsty, war-hungry fervor can just dominate the conversation in D.C. And now we're at a point where Biden wants to send one – and this would also uh, benefit Israel, Taiwan, uh, Israel and Taiwan in addition to Ukraine. But $100 billion in addition to the NDAA. Yep. And in exchange for getting that passed, he's going to – implement the same immigration policies that he spent his campaign using as a contrast to Trump, calling them inhuman, inhumane, calling them cruel, and Democrats, and then a lot of the grassroots on the left, galvanized in, galvanized in opposition to during Trump's administration. There was a huge nationwide day of protest in 2018 about some of Trump's immigration policies. And here we are, a couple of years after Biden takes office, oh, we have to increase support for wars, one of which is deeply unpopular here in the States. And in exchange, Republicans also get a win on immigration. Like you were just setting yourself up for failure in 2024, but doing all of these things in the same deal that are unpopular among your base. It's just, it's wild to me that they can't recognize that or they just don't want to. And maybe it's because it's much easier to be an opposition party because that helps fundraising and fundraising is a really big problem for the left right now. Yeah. They're, they're throwing away a lot of goodwill that they got from some of the legitimately good progressive things that the Biden administration has done. You know, all the stuff that'll label as like dark brand and stuff. Like they're throwing away all that goodwill. Just it's, it's garbage now. Yeah. And they did it rapidly. Like infrastructure components of BBB. Those were decent play. I mean, infrastructure, if you want to talk about a jobs bill, it's, it's that. Yeah. Granted, it's not perfect, but between that and you know support for the care economy and different components within BBB, those are good things that you could have run on. You could have defined your tenure with. Instead, people are going to remember these horrible wars, thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying, and worse immigration policies that you <laughs> you are implementing. You can't blame Trump for that. Yeah. And, and, and there's like data that shows like with, with regards to investing in infrastructure that uh, from the, the cost of war Institute at uh, I believe at Brown University, one of the Ivies, it says if you put the same amount of money that we're putting into defense into green jobs or healthcare education, you create far more jobs. And it's not because they're lower paid or anything like that. It's because less of a cut is going to uh, to to investors and to executives. 
So it's really just a, it's, it's a transfer of wealth. It really is a transfer of wealth and it's transfer of wealth that we are committing human rights abuses in exchange to get to do. Yeah. And one thing definitely that I've noticed uh, when you have the very serious uh, economics thinkers that enter these kind of conversations, I think there's like a, something that has really struck me uh, when listening to these kind of conversations is, a, is the idea that like, when you talk about this transfer of wealth and whenever there's this massive transfer of wealth upwards from the people that have nothing to the people that have the most, mysteriously, it doesn't have these like downstream economic consequences. It doesn't cause inflation. It doesn't cause all these, these problems, you know, but whenever there's this effort, like as you saw at the beginning of the pandemic with both the Trump administration and the Biden administration passing these kinds of policies and instituting a kind of threadbare social safety net for Americans for the first time in like a generation, mysteriously, that has all these these terrible economic consequences and we got to make sure we cancel the child tax credit and we make sure we cancel these more generous unemployment benefits or whatever transfer payments that they were doing. Because when you transfer money to the, the from the most powerful to the people that have the least, it causes inflation, it causes all these these consequences, which of course never works when the money's flowing uh, in the other direction. Yeah, it's just it's it's uh they they make a it's a it's a really good messaging thing that they've done. You know, like you gotta admit when the other when like the other side has good messaging, like pro life is genius messaging. And it, that's also genius messaging that these things will that will will drive up inflation. It's just it's it's good messaging, but it's bullshit. And one the other thing I've noticed as well, like you're you're seeing this with Ukraine and you're seeing it in a way with Israel as well. And it seems like as also with certain shifts that are going on right now at the Biden administration with regards to China, you saw President Xi getting invited to California to meet with Gavin Newsom, and there seems to be a little bit of a softening of the language there. But it, it kind of seems like the U.S. empire is stretched really thin right now, and like they're not really able to, like you pointed out, they're not able to supply Ukraine with the weapons that they need to that to actually complete the object, objectives that were kind of made clear to people. Um, they're not able to uh, arm Israel to the extent that they have been in the past. And I think that's really interesting when you take into account this trillion dollar annual defense spending and going back to what I was saying earlier about the kind of fraud and incompetence or or whatever has been going on in the defense industry, you got to wonder like, where has this money been going? Like, how is it so impossible for the United States to ramp up the production of the kind of arms that they claim that Ukraine needs um, when they're spending this gigantic amount of money every single year on weapons, like something is not really adding up here. Like it's not a surprise that the Pentagon is not passing these audits because with that amount of money that is being spent, you would think that there would be more than enough supplies and ammunition or whatever the fuck else Ukraine or whatever other US proxy needs to defend themselves, but they don't even have that. So what are you actually spending this money on? Like it's, it's actually kind of incredible. That's what's kind of uh, almost complicated because it's like, you know, you have to think like somebody who wants the military to be as well-armed as possible, right? And if you're thinking from the perspective of somebody that wants the military to have the best possible stuff, to have it delivered on time, right? Thinking from that person's perspective, that is not what's happening. That's not where this money is going. You're 100% right. Uh, they, it, it, between uh, 2009 and 2019, this is a Department of Defense report. This isn't like Common Dreams or something or me. This is a Department of Defense report. Margins on all defense companies are far up. So they're making more of a profit on each individual product. But that none of that is going towards new technology. R&D is all way down. And in the same time, they've get, uh, their like, uh, stock buybacks and dividends and all that stuff have gone up 73%. 
So it's literally right there where the money's going. The money is going directly to the shareholders. The money is going to creating a risk-free investment so that more people will invest in them. Um, it's like exactly what you think it is, but it, that's the numbers are there. Yeah. Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> it's, I don't know what to say. It's just it's very frustrating. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. Um, yeah. like considering the ways that like when you you hear the media or people in politics talk about the the budget of the United States and they say you gotta think about it like a family budget. Like if this was a fucking family budget, this family would be absolutely out of out of a home, they'd be bankrupt, they would have nothing. Like it's like that drill tweet about spending ten thousand dollars on candles or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. In addition to all the, the the rent and food and electricity and all this stuff, like we the United States government and people like its representatives lecture working class people about how they need to tighten their belt. And the way that that's the reason we can't have any kind of a social safety net, we can't have enhanced unemployment, we can't have welfare, you can't eliminate student debt. You know, it's just it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be economically prudent, you know. We have to think of, in, of the economy in this way. But then, when you look at the way that they actually spend money and allocate resources, it's absolutely insane. And uh, I think that's the yeah. really disgusting thing about the way that they talk to working class people about who are struggling to get by right now. Um, when that's the, that's where you see what the United States government's priorities are. Um, it's it's really preposterous, and it's again, it's no wonder why people are starting to just completely reject this kind of uh, this message. When they when people from the Joe Biden administration or its representatives are saying like, no, actually the economy is really good, and you're wrong for thinking it's bad. Like you're wrong if you think that you're struggling to get by or that it's it's more difficult to afford a home or groceries have gone up or whatever it is. No, you're wrong. It's actually really good. If you look at this chart in this line. Things are actually going very, very well. That's Bidenomics, but and completely ignoring the actual experiences that that people are having. Um, you know, it's it's really not surprising. Yeah. I think that people are are a little bit turned off by this kind of lecturing uh, from these kinds of like liberal uh, stewards of the the economy. You, you brought up that classic drill tweet, and the way I think of it is like you know he's saying he's spending ten thousand dollars on candles, but the way it's working here is like we're spending ten thousand dollars on candles. Or we're getting like five candles and then giving $9,990 to Stephen A. Schwartz. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, we're not even getting the candles. So it's, yeah, you're 100% right. And then they're telling you that it's like inflation, like, you know, the prices of eggs is up, it's from inflation, but it's, it's that's not the, that's not the case. Yeah. It's also important to look at the NDAA when we talk about it as a jobs plan. There's an increase of 5.2% for pay for people in the military. And that is the only raise that you're going to see, other than raises for themselves, of course. That's the only raise you're going to see members of Congress support. And then when you think about you know, things like the signing bonuses that you can get when you enlist, on top of all of the other benefits, juxtaposed with how unstable economic conditions are for working people in this country... It it's, seems transparent to me that they are just trying to funnel as many people as they can into the military, and the only place you're going to get stability, the only place you're going to get uh, free college, the only place you're going to get guaranteed health care, all this other stuff, at least for the first few to several years of your adult life, really the only guaranteed place is that. Everything else is you're on your own if you find it good. And I was looking at the ads last year for how they market the different branches to people on Facebook for these 
signing bonuses and different things. And like the military was just running huge ads, big, bold letters, or I guess in this case, numbers, $50,000. You enjoy, you join the army right now. And they had these ads running all over the country. And then I was looking at the navies and if you enlisted and became an explosive ordnance maintenance technician, basically it's a hurt locker. You just want to go in and deal with bombs. You can get a signing bonus of up to $110,000, which is insane. But like, hey, you want to put your nice. life on life on the line here? Here's how you can get six figures. Everything else, you're, you're screwed. Yeah, that, that's that, that's appalling. And it's, um, you know, I feel like a lot of people on the left are, you know, uh, like, I don't want to say have disrespect for like the troops, but I, I understand how somebody can get wrapped into that. I think we all kind of understand how somebody can get wrapped into that. Um, it's yeah. Like I feel much differently about how I feel about somebody in the military than I do a cop, for, for example. Um, yeah. it seems like, yeah. Well, it's interesting how in, in a military without a draft, it actually kind of acts as a de facto draft when you mm-hmm. take away economic opportunities from people until that's the only path that's left for people to be able to kind of build some kind of an income or create some kind of a future for themselves. You don't need to have a draft when you kind of have all the the levers of the economy steering people into that direction, into this funnel, you know? Uh, so yeah. it is pretty insidious the way that that works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there was, uh, when the student loans was, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh yeah. When, when student loan uh, forgiveness was shot down, there was some Senator or Congressman, I forget who it was. And I, I could try to look it up, but who said like, if we forgive student loans, then nobody's going to join the military anymore. And that's like, uh, at, uh, at, at more perfect union, we call that the, uh, Oh my God, he admitted moments like, uh, that thing from, I think you should leave. Like it's, they, they just, he just said it. He said that, that that's what will happen. So it's, they know it's, it's not, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This isn't, you know, three dudes talking about leftist politics, coming up with what we think is the truth. They've they've admitted it. They say this, these things. Yeah, that was Representative Jim Banks, who thank you. I believe, God, I, I can't remember, but I'm almost certain Jim Banks's communications director was at that point Tucker Carlson's son. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, uh, just yeah, just laid it all out for you. Uh, that's I did not know that. That's a that's a nice little nepotism hire. Yeah. Well, you know, he worked his way up. First, he got an internship in the Trump White House, and then he earned his role in Congress as a communications director, fresh out of college. That's just, I mean, you, it's a that that's a meritocracy if I've ever seen one. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Just tuck across the sun straight to the top. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, we want to thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Uh, check out more Perfect Union on, on all, all social channels. My favorite's YouTube. Search us on YouTube. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, SNMRRW. I think I'm on Blue Sky and Threads too, but I forget to check those all the time. Thank you guys so much for having, uh, uh, for having me. I'm a long, long-time listener, first-time guest. So happy to be here. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome back anytime. Thanks a lot, guys.